This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. I just wanted to say that I would absolutely take a birth control made for men. Uh, I've watched my wife struggle with um, anxiety and different uh, chemical imbalances uh, causing anxiety and depression. And, you know, if it meant saving her some grief, um, trying to switch and find the different birth controls that work right for her, I would definitely take a birth control made for men. I would absolutely take a male birth control pill if a safe, effective one were available. Um, it seems less drastic than a vasectomy, assuming that the effect stops when one stops taking the pill. I think it's a good thing for both potential parents to have some control over conception. I had a vasectomy 25 years ago, and uh, it was a interesting experience. After a couple of incisions that were made incorrectly, the doctor said, well, he said, now you have a, a smiley face on your, um, it's a great story. 90% of women have used a contraceptive at some point during their reproductive years. That's according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. And when it comes to taking the birth control pill, the burden and side effects fall on the person who can get pregnant. But what if men could take a birth control pill? Researchers recently discovered that a drug used to treat eye disease also temporarily stops sperm motility in mice. Hours later, they were back to swimming. So is the hunt for the missing male pill about to end? And why is that hunt taking so long? We get into those questions and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk Concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more. Then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us from New York is Melanie Balbach. She's a reproductive biologist at Weill Cornell Medical College. She's also a lead author on the study into this contraceptive pill targeting sperm. Melanie, thank you for joining us. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Dr. Brian Nguyen. He's a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Southern California. He also researches male birth control. Dr. Nguyen, welcome. Thanks for having me. And we're also joined by Crystal Littlejohn, author of Just Get on the Pill, The Uneven Burden of Reproductive Politics. She's also a professor of sociology at the University of Oregon. Professor Littlejohn, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So, Melanie, at first I just want the story of how you discovered this drug and that it had this effect on mice. Um, Yeah, so we already knew very well the function of that one protein in sperm. So we always like to describe it as an on switch. So what essentially has to happen after the sperm are produced, they're just sitting in a second tissue and they're just sleeping. And then as soon as they are ejaculated, they have to start becoming motile. And that on switch in sperm that we're targeting controls that start off motility. But um, when that on-switch was discovered 20 years ago, after they found that it's also uh, found in other tissues, not just in sperm and testes, the idea of using it as a contraceptive target was discarded very quickly because people were too scared that it might have too many side effects. As you already explained in your intro, that's very important for developing a male contraceptive. So when I came to the lab in 2017, one of the grad students in the lab was testing an inhibitor, so a small molecule that blocks that on-switch in sperm, but she was not testing it on sperm. She was actually testing it in mice for uh, treatment of an eye disease. So I said, okay, I'll help you, but I want to look at the sperm and see if their function is affected when the mice get that inhibitor. And that was indeed the case. So what I found was that 30 minutes after the mice got that inhibitor, the sperm stopped swimming. And then about three hours later, their motility resumed. And then 24 hours later, um, their motility was back to normal. So I also did uh, mating experiments where I gave that inhibitor to male mice. And then I paired them with females for two and a half hours. And in those two and a half hour mating window, we got zero pregnancies, which means we have a contraceptive effect of 100% for that time period. And then the fertility slowly comes back. And then 24 hours later, the male mice are fertile again. And within that that window, it, it sounds as if the sex drive of the male mice, it, it wasn't affected. Yeah. So um, we actually found that the male mice, after they got that inhibitor, were normally mating with the female. So we can actually, there's a little plug forming at the opening of the vagina of the female after they made it. So you can actually see that by eye. And that happened normally, which means they made it normally, just the sperm were not moving. And that's why um, no pregnancies occurred. Dr. Nguyen, when you think about how this could kind of change the game for contraception for men. What comes to mind for you? No, absolutely. At this point, any method of reversible male contraception would be a game changer for the landscape of male contraception, given that there are so few methods. Uh, In terms of the methods that are currently being uh, studied right now, we have hormonal methods, uh, for which the drawback is that you do have to wait a little bit Um, about a month or two months in order for you to drop your sperm count down to zero. And so the research that um, Dr. Balbuck just uh, talked about provides an on-demand method whereby you have a 
uh, male cognitive effect that is occurring pretty much within half an hour. Um, so certainly there is definitely um, room for both methods. Uh, it's very encouraging. Professor Littlejohn, what does your research say about the current expectations around birth control methods in heterosexual partners? So my research shows that people overwhelmingly expect that the person who can get pregnant is going to be the one that carries the burden for preventing pregnancy. And we know that this has been a longstanding expectation in our society. And we also know uh, that the people who are expected to carry the burden are incredibly frustrated uh, by both the social expectation that they do it and also by the widespread acceptance that there's nothing wrong with that, right? That it's, it's their job to do it. It's their job to put up with side effects. It's their job to make sure that they can make it happen regardless of what else might be going on in their lives. And the promise of, of methods like the ones that we're describing are that they have the potential to actually reshape those expectations to take some of the burden off of women and people who can get pregnant so that they actually have um, more support for helping them prevent pregnancy, which they're, they're doing for years and years on end. So Melanie, walk us through what happens next in your research. You've had this study in mice. Where do you go from here? So the ultimate goal is that we start with clinical trials in humans because we want to make a pill for humans, right? So it needs to be tested there. But there are really two things we still have to do. So um, for the Federal Drug Administration in the U.S. to allow a clinical trial, they need to see an effect in a second animal model. So we're actually going to test our inhibitor also in rabbits to show that it has the similar effect in mice, naming that the um, motility of the sperm is blocked, and then we will also do mating experiments with the rabbits to hopefully see that there are no pregnancies as well. And then the second thing we do, we don't really call it a drug yet. We rather call it a preclinical drug candidate or just an inhibitor because we need to perform some optimization for that inhibitor to really become a drug. So that you have to imagine it's quite complicated because that inhibitor or drug needs to fulfill a plethora of criteria. So you have to, we want it to be an oral pill. So it has to be able to be taken orally. Then we want a contraceptive window of about 24 to 48 hours. As I described in the mice, it's currently two and a half hours. So we definitely want to work on extending it that a little bit. And then another complication with a male contraceptive is that the uh, drug is in the male, but then comes in the sperm with the drug comes into the female that has no drug. So the um, inhibitor has to be really, really sticky and stay on the sperm. So we currently have inhibitors that individually have those characteristics. So we're really working on combining these characteristics in one ideal inhibitor that we can then use for clinical trials, because we really want to use the best one possible for clinical trials because we really only have one shot to get this right. That's Melanie Balbach, a reproductive biologist at Weill Cornell Medical College. She's the lead author of the new study into a birth control drug targeting sperm. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be watching your research very closely. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Dr. Nguyen, when it comes to creating a birth control pill that targets sperm specifically, what are some of the challenges? Well, you know, you heard some of the challenges coming from Melanie about uh, some of the challenges, which is making sure that when the sperm um, are uh, immobilized, how long it takes for them to, uh, you know, reanimate. 
in that case, how long do you have to uh, in, your, in your window of protection here? So, you know, in humans, we know that some individuals will have sex more than once. Uh, and so they might, the half an hour that they currently are allotted might not be enough. And not only that, uh, while we do have 100% effectiveness in mice, uh, if one sperm does get through, uh, that sperm that carries the um, SAC inhibitor is not going to have impact on the female partner. And so there is a lot of work to be done to make sure that the actions are specific. How close have scientists come to developing a male birth control pill before now? Well, actually, the, um, the trial that we're currently working on is, in, is already in humans. So it's a phase 2B trial of a hormonal gel that combines both nesterone and testosterone, both hormones that we have a lot of experience with um, in prior studies for other functions. Um, and we have been recruiting for this trial since 2018, and uh, the trial uh, recruits about 400 couples. And so far, we've uh, followed about 100 couples over the course of a year with no pregnancies. So uh, the results of that trial are going to come out probably uh, by next year. And just to be clear, that's a gel, not a pill. So how does the gel work? Yeah, it's a topical hormonal gel. So the, uh, the way I describe it is that's kind of like a thermostat whereby um, the hormones go into the body and then the brain detects uh, the amount of hormone and, and then shuts down the system for creation of the body's own internal hormones. So uh, in shutting down that system, it also shuts down sperm production as well. So just to be clear, the male applies the gel to their shoulders. Is there any concern about transference of these hormones to the other partner? It's something that we're monitoring very closely. Um, there always is that thought, and so we do give instructions for the male partners to, uh, you know, put on their shirt or to wait before having um, prolonged physical contact with a female partner. Now, Professor Littlejohn, the the new pill we were talking about uh, in a little earlier, it was almost discovered by accident, but the first hormonal birth control pill was approved by the Food and Drug Administration in 1960, and millions of people still take some form of the pill today. How was that pill developed? Dr. Nguyen, why is there so little research into birth control that, that targets sperm historically? Well, you know, it's a question of priorities, and I think we heard that also from Melanie regarding uh, the origin story of her current work, whereby even though they knew that it had impacts on sperm for quite some time, uh, the initial uh, impetus for the research uh, was actually on uh, for ophthalmologic reasons. So uh, it has to do with perceived priorities of the researchers and the mentors um, and pharmaceutical industries as well regarding what is going to make money. And that's really unfortunate. Um, so for that reason, the number of individuals who are researching male contraception are quite few. Uh, and that certainly is something that needs to change. And I'm hoping that um, you know, getting more public awareness about male contraception and the need for it uh, is going to help bring us there. Dr. Nguyen, if there was going to be a ramp up in research into um, medications that would prevent sperm motility or really put more of the burden of responsibility on the people producing the sperm, <laughs> what do you think from a policy perspective would need to shift? Well, you know, I think it, um, you know, even if you have methods that are approved, uh, like female contraceptives currently, even if they're subsidized by, uh, you know, tax dollars, we still have access issues. We still have uh, stigma issues that we deal with. And those are going to be the exact same that we are going to see with male contraception. Uh, if we look at vasectomy as a model, uh, we know that even though it is um, covered by insurance, 
that people still have difficulty finding people who will provide a vasectomy. So I anticipate that what we're going to need is an overhaul of uh, policies that really allow um, male contraceptives to be, to be provided at little to no cost and also to train uh, physicians to provide it. Professor Littlejohn, part of what I hear you alluding to is this, I would say, perhaps not quite overt um, belief about who's responsible for pregnancy, preventing pregnancy, and this this bias, this gender bias that seeps into medicine on on so many different levels. Where did you see that turn up? most explicitly in your research? It turned up most explicitly in how people talked about women's uh, use of birth control, right? So this idea, and I think you see this especially clearly when we, when we think about men's willingness to tolerate side effects and to tolerate particular forms of birth control. And you, on the other side, when it comes to women, there's just this, and I would say it's, it's quite explicit, just this explicit expectation that they put up with side effects. So as, as you're saying, it's, it's, more, uh, it's less overt in the ways that we say, you know, people must put up with a particular side effect, but it's it's much more explicit in the way that they're told, hey, if you're having this particular side effect, you can just keep trying until you find another method with the expectation being that they're absolutely going to find another method because they, they must find another method to, to stay on birth control. And so I saw this with partners, um, kind of pressuring uh, the women in my study to continue to use prescription birth control, even when they didn't necessarily want to. I saw this sometimes with providers and the way that providers would talk about, would talk to women about continuing to use uh, prescription birth control. And the idea was that whether or not they face side effects, whether or not they actually wanted to use prescription birth control, they should in fact stay on prescription birth control like the pill, uh, because it was just crucial for them to prevent pregnancy. Um, whatever, by whatever means necessary. And in this case, it meant even if it created quite a bit of discomfort for them in their personal lives and with their bodies. Dr. Nguyen, when you think about the, the educational learning curve that would need to accompany some of these other options, uh, whether it's a, a birth control pill for, for males, whether it's the, the gel you're working on and researching, What's top of mind for you in talking to patients to be able to access these methods? What do you think needs to, the sort of education that needs to go along with, with these methods? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, if I had to take it back all the way to the origin here, what we would, I would say is a complete overhaul of sex education whereby we begin teaching young men that it's their responsibility to also know about reproduction and uh, be responsible for reproduction. Uh, what I still hear is that some young men and young women are segregated when learning about contraceptive methods, and that uh, kind of begins that gender disparity regarding whose responsibility it is to prevent pregnancy. Uh, why should this knowledge only be um, you know, given to you know females when male partners would also benefit from knowing that there is a range of methods and also should be aware of what complications can happen with contraception uh, so as to better empathize with the burden of preventing unplanned pregnancy. We're discussing male birth control options and new research that's put some scientists closer to developing a pharmaceutical drug that targets sperm. We'll be back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. 
Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. Now let's get back to our discussion about male contraception and what a male birth control pill could mean for reproductive politics. And let's bring another voice into the conversation. Dr. Eskar Guarin is the medical director at Simple Vast. That's a vasectomy clinic in Pleasant Hill, Iowa, near Des Moines. He also operates a mobile vasectomy clinic that travels across the state. Dr. Guarin, welcome to 1A. Well, thank you very much, Jan, for having me here today. So as we've said, we've been discussing this recent discovery that puts scientists closer to developing a pharmaceutical drug to temporarily freeze sperm motility, but it's going to be some years before that would be available after additional testing. One option for men is a vasectomy. Walk us through how a vasectomy works. Well, an option is a vasectomy when the uh, fertility has been satisfied for for the individual. The, the vasectomy is simply uh, just interrupting the transfer of the sperm into the semen. So and by, we accomplish that by severing the vas deferens, which is a tiny little duct that brings the sperm from the testicles in, into uh, the seminal fluid. And it's a procedure that is done in 10 minutes, should be done in a medical office under local anesthesia without any major discomfort for the patient, uh, and that has a recovery time of 48 hours. Dr. Guarin, how many men get vasectomies? Well, not enough. Uh, I'll tell you that. Uh, in the United States, for every man who gets a vasectomy, approximately, just if we want to compare apples to apples, uh, about three women get their uh, tubes tied. And this is just to compare surgical uh, permanent contraceptive methods. So uh, we have the data that we have is not consistent uh, it's a little bit of an old data, and it's data that is obtained from estimates that have been done uh, after uh, obtaining information from uh, insurance companies. So the estimation is probably about 400, between 450,000 and 500,000 men in the United States get a vasectomy every year. But three times that, at least, will be the expectation for tubal ligations. Uh, in fact, when you look at, um, at the data that we have uh, from the uh, National Survey of Family Growth, uh, 18% of women report having, you know, use over the past month uh, tubal ligation as their method of contraception, whereas only 5.6% of women report uh, relying on a vasectomy. So there's a big discrepancy there, and there's not enough of those procedures. How often do vasectomies fail? It depends. It really depends on the procedure. According to the American Urological Association guidelines that are due to be uh, revised, but they're from 2012, the uh, most appropriate method of, of, of occluding or cutting, severing the vast difference should render a failure rate of less than 1%. And the ones that should be done mostly are those that, that, that provide that. Uh, most of what we do is what we call 
a uh, intraluminal cauterization, which is uh, sort of burning the inside of the vas deferens in one of the segments after we cut it, and then covering it with a tissue that surrounds it, which we, we call fascial interposition. That actually renders a failure rate, that is the possibility of reconnecting the vas deferens, of less than 0.5%. And these patients, once they have gotten a, a 12 week, after 12 weeks of the procedure, a semen sample to verify the absence of the, of the sperm there, at that point, the failure rate becomes 0.0002%, so one out of 2,000. So it's actually very, very effective when it's done properly. Dr. Guarin, how reversible are vasectomies? Well, they are, and, uh, and perhaps they are, it's certainly uh, they're easier to reverse when you compare it to, to tubal ligation. However, uh, any individual who gets into getting a vasectomy should assume that this is a permanent procedure. We should never be doing this uh, or promoting uh, a vasectomy thinking, yes, this is something that you can reverse. Because the rates of reversibility, the success of the reversibility is pretty variable. It depends on where you, or who you talk to, but in the literature, you would see that somewhere between 50 to 70% success will be expected. Some people would have a success uh, that is higher based on their uh, surgical expertise, but we need to remember that the uh, success rates are only, not only uh, the success of having sperm back into the semen, but also the success of generating a pregnancy, which is a different kind of success rate, and that could be a little lower, it could be about 60%. So getting into uh, doing a vasectomy has to be after, uh, this has to happen after the individual feels completely satisfied with his fertility, you know, and, and understanding that this is, this should be assumed as a permanent procedure. Dr. Nguyen, according to Planned Parenthood, there's been an increased interest in vasectomies since the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade last year. When you consult with patients about their different birth control options, what makes someone a good candidate for a vasectomy? Yeah, well, actually, I, as an OBGYN, I primarily see patients who uh, have uteruses uh, and are capable of becoming pregnant. And, um, you know, what I find is that um, they oftentimes have not talked to their partners about vasectomy when vasectomy is a viable option and also a safer option uh, for individuals who have uh, contraindications to using hormones or might just be poor surgical candidates. So um, I find that it's uh, very much under-discussed um, as something that we should be doing more. Dr. Guarin, you have a mobile vasectomy clinic, which is an 11,000-pound van. You, you drive across Iowa part of the year. Why did you start the mobile clinic? Well, I, I am part of the medical advisory board at a nonprofit called World Vasectomy Day. This nonprofit travels around the world uh, teaching how to do vasectomies in the simplest manner and promoting and highlighting the participation of men in contraception through, through vasectomies. And we had had the opportunity to use mobile, v, uh, mobile uh, medical units in other countries. Uh, World Vasectomy Day used some of those in Indonesia, and I personally had the opportunity to use some of those to end vasectomies in Mexico in 2017. So when I had that experience, uh, I started thinking that that was, that was a great way to show, to convey the message of the simplicity of the vasectomy. And certainly the use of these in these countries like Indonesia and Mexico, even in the literature is, is uh, documented that the use of mobile units in Nepal increases the uptake of reproductive services, uh, is because, you know, there are no providers available and then you move the provider to different places. But I thought in the United States it would be a great idea to bring a mobile unit to convey that message of simplicity, of mobility of the vasectomy. 
you don't need to be in an operating room when you're doing a, a vasectomy. You don't need to have all the human resources required for a bilateral tubal ligation or, or the infrastructure for that. You don't need an anesthesiologist, a scrub tag, the operating room, and so forth. And you can do it. You can do a vasectomy in a small medical office. And we've done it in other countries, in, in, in Ecuador, in Colombia, in Haiti, in Rwanda, in Kenya. And why wouldn't we discuss this? So I, I just envisioned, and I had that idea for about three years, and envisioned the message being, uh, the message traveling across the highway in a big box printed with sperm all over itself, you know, suggestive messages uh, stimulating the participation of men and the word vasectomy all over to generate the conversations. And uh, so that's, that's why we came about the idea of doing this. I finally convinced my wife, took some equity out of my house and put that uh, on the road as a vehicle of education. Mm. So, uh, Dr. Guarin, as you think about the possibility of a pharmaceutical drug that targets sperm, what would that mean for your practice? Well, I think it would be fantastic. I absolutely would love that. Uh, I think that we are long due to have a more active participation of men in contraception. It is absolutely necessary. You know, we have been focusing on, on, on perhaps on the wrong individual for a long time. We're focusing on an individual who's not fertile 24-7 uh, the entire year. We focus on, on an individual who's fertile once a month during a, a limited period of time. By the time a woman or a female individual reaches menopause, she's no longer fertile. But men are fertile all the way until we die. You know, the quality of the sperm certainly might, might decay, but, but we still are capable of generating a pregnancy. So it would be fantastic to have that. You know, when people tell, ask me, um, if we talk about just more people doing vasectomies, would you be concerned about more, more people doing vasectomies? I say no. The, the true competition, and Dr. Gwen, don't take in this, don't take this any, in any personal way, but the true competition is not, is not more people doing vasectomies or, or male contraceptives. The true competition uh, for those of us who pr promote the participation of men in contraception is tubal ligations. The burden of contraception has been unfairly placed on the shoulders of women for too long. And if we have more ways to get men to participate more proactively in contraception, it should be welcome. That's Dr. Asghar Guarin. He's a medical director at Simple Vast. That's a vasectomy clinic in Pleasant Hill, Iowa. He also operates a mobile vasectomy clinic that travels across the state. Dr. Guarin, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for, for having me here today. We heard from several of you who told us you don't necessarily trust your partners to be responsible enough to take a birth control pill regularly or correctly. Megan in Minnesota emailed, based on my experience, younger men, especially college-aged men, aren't always the most responsible. So I don't know if I would trust them to consistently take a birth control pill, not to mention the consequences would still be on the women. We also heard from Craig in Fort Myers, Florida. I'm a professor of women's studies and have been for over 30 years. And we often have this conversation in my classes regarding women's health and reproductive rights. And the consensus seems to be that women wouldn't trust men to take a pill every day. They wouldn't trust that method. Professor Littlejohn, I'm curious to hear what you think of these concerns. Yeah, I think the key issue and the key thing to think about is that 
birth control use doesn't have to be an either or proposition, right? There's there's no reason why both partners couldn't take a form of birth control to help prevent pregnancy. And we we know, in fact, that dual method use, right, or using more than one method of birth control is, is actually the most effective at preventing pregnancy. And so for me, I, I think that although there are some, obviously, folks have concerns uh, about partners' willingness and responsibility for, for continuously using a form of birth control, using it correctly, I think the key is that if people have concerns that their partners won't be able to, they can count on their partners to try to help support them while they continue to use a method of their own. But their partner using something doesn't mean that that they are prohibited from, from continuing to use something for themselves. And I think the same goes for, for men and people who can produce sperm, right? Just because their, their female partner might be using a form of prescription birth control like the pill or like the IUD, it doesn't mean that they themselves can't continue to use a condom or use some other form of birth control to prevent pregnancy too. Uh, Professor Littlejohn, when I think about marketing contraception that targets sperm, I can I can come up with half a dozen ideas for, you know, pithy commercials pretty easily. But I mean, why is why is this idea that oh, this would be hard to tar- hard to market? Why is that idea so sticky? I think it's really based on this idea that we can expect women to tolerate whatever uh, the methods bring with them because they need to prevent pregnancy and they're held accountable for doing that. And so you see this really big difference in our approaches to try and, and find to try and find methods for men versus methods for women. Uh, and it, it really boils down to this idea that in medicine and in, in broader society, uh, the expectation is that women tolerate also sorts of things that are uncomfortable. And when it comes to birth control and when it comes to side effects that or any other any of the other inconveniences that might a- accompany birth control, I think the idea is that they should just do it. But also I think that we end up um, kind of obscuring the challenges that women do have, right? So when we or and people who can get pregnant do have with using prescription birth control. So when you look at commercials, right, we, we oftentimes see these these kind of images depicted that using birth control is easy, that it's fun, uh, that it's carefree. And that doesn't actually track with, with people's experiences. So I, I think it's, it's a challenging situation that we face to try and, and interrupt these narratives around what prescription birth control use actually means and what it looks like on the ground. Well, I also want to just make sure we circle back to these questions of equity and access. So, Professor Littlejohn, what concerns do you have about who may or may not have access to a birth control pill targeting sperm if and when it becomes available? So I think we're we're likely going to see the same kinds of challenges that Dr. Wynn mentioned, right, where you're going to have issues with people who can afford uh, to, to get their method in, in whatever, uh, in terms of whatever cost they, they might face to getting that, whether that be getting to the clinic, whether that may be overcoming some of the ideas that we have in our society that might stigmatize contraceptive use for men, right? In my research, I, it shows that gender norms are huge, right? The way that we think about what men and women should be doing that that plays an important role um, in their experiences. But I also think lastly, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the ways that we see attacks on birth control happening in this country, right? And I'm not sure that we should expect that we won't see those same kinds of attacks happening for, for male forms of birth control as they try to come to market. Well, we got this tweet from Tia who says, do we need to start drafting laws that will create an incentive for men to use the birth control pill? I mean, Dr. Wynn, we are several years out before this could even potentially come to market. But, you know, circling back to that idea of education and 
really incentivizing this this option uh, for people? What do you hope happens before the pill hits the market to maybe start to shift thinking around this as a way to prevent pregnancy? Well, you know, first off, I'll say that we should never really be, really be incentivizing the use of any kind of birth control, um, but we shouldn't be disincentivizing. And what I mean by that is that if you uh, are familiar with the Affordable Care Act, the Affordable Care Act does mandate that all uh, methods of contraception, or at least all insurance companies, uh, provide coverage for contraception uh, for their users. Uh, but specifically, the contraceptive methods are female methods. And so if a man uh, ha- or a cisgender man has a insurance uh, coverage and wants to get a vasectomy, let's say, that would not be covered, whereas a tubal ligation would. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that speaks to the, the disparity that uh, Dr. Guarin was talking about earlier. Um, and so that has to be changed because ultimately what's going to happen is that as a male, a male method is going to come out um, and it won't be covered by insurance. And so even if it's out, it won't be used, um, regardless of the desires of um, potential users. So, Professor Littlejohn, if a birth control pill targeting sperm becomes available or or that gel hits the market, what do you think will change? I think in order to make our technologies actually overlap with the goal of of helping support uh, men's reproductive autonomy too, we need to make sure that we change our social thinking, right? I think there's a difference between interest and action. And in order to facilitate the change from being interested in using a form of birth control to actually taking action and using it, we have to change the ways that we think about men's responsibility for helping to prevent pregnancy. That's Crystal Littlejohn. She's a professor of sociology at the University of Oregon and author of Just Get on the Pill, The Uneven Burden of Reproductive Politics. Also with us was Dr. Brian Nguyen, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Southern California. Dr. Littlejohn, Dr. Nguyen, thanks to you both. Today's producer was Anna Casey. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, you'll get thoughtful, in-depth analysis of both the stock and the bond markets. Listen today and subscribe at schwab.com slash on investing or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.